Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your co-host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season of Club Book looks and sounds a little different than our previous seasons. Due to COVID-19, we are bringing seasons to you virtually instead of our traditional live events hosted in libraries around the Twin Cities Metro. Our format will be a little different too. Events this season will consist of facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. And will also include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. With that, I'll turn it over to our host for this evening's event. Enjoy. Welcome to Club Book with HW Brands. My name is Christopher P. Lyman. I'm a professor of ethnic studies at St. Cloud State University and author of the 2020 Minnesota Book Award winning Slavery's Reach, Southern Slaveholders in the North Star State. I will be your moderator for tonight's event. Before I introduce HW properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that is bringing him to you. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Hennepin County Library is the co-organizer of this evening's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller Red Balloon Bookshop. Without further ado, chart-topping historian H.W. Brands is one of the foremost American Studies scholars writing today, and also one of the most prolific. With nearly 40 published books to date, his work spans more than three decades of dedicated scholarship and nearly every epoch of American history. Brands' areas of specialty include economic history, and global policy, as well as biographies on presidents and other change makers who shaped our nation. He is a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist for The First American, The Life and Times of Benjamin Franklin, and Traitor to His Class, The Privileged Life and Radical Presidency of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Brands's latest is The Zealot and the Emancipator, John Brown, Abraham Lincoln, and the Struggle for American Freedom. Brands' incisive look at the abolition of slavery gained wide acclaim. Library Journal calls it a fascinating and wonderfully readable portrayal of the tensions between fiery militancy and determined but measured devotion in working toward a goal. After a short presentation by our guest, we'll have time for audience Q&A. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will route them to me. If you prefer to ask a query a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Clubbook here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Well, thanks for the uh, very kind introduction and thank you to Clubbook and their sponsoring institutions. I'm always flattered and pleased at the opportunity to address a new audience. I'm, uh, I've been a teacher for now 40 years and you know, every time I can get a new classroom, it's a great day for me. So I'm gonna tell you a little, about, a little bit about why I wrote a book about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln. And it really has to do with the fact, I guess as I get older, or maybe I'll just say more experienced as a teacher, I've concluded that the fundamental questions of history, and especially those questions to which my students who are citizens in making, which is one of the reasons they have to take my required class in American history, the ones that they need to be attuned to are the questions of responsibility. And the responsibility questions very often engage a certain degree of morality. What is the moral duty of a citizen? What's the moral duty of a person? And the way I pose it in this book 
is what does a good person do in the face of evil? And I suggest that I mean, most of you can identify with this at some time or another. You see something happen that you consider to be wrong. What do you do? Do you ignore it? Do you take it on? Do you report it to somebody? What do you do? This can start early. You see some kid bullying another kid on the playground. What do you do? What do you want your child to do under those circumstances? It is, I think, preeminently a question for citizens in a democracy. If we lived in a dictatorship under a monarchy where the, the citizens, where the individuals are not responsible for what government does, then it takes a different form. But in the case of the United States, we citizens, we're the ones who are responsible for the policy of the government. So what do we do when the government is doing something that we consider to be wrong? As a kind of a personal background here, I'm, I was born in the well early 1950s. I was born in 1953. So I was a bit too young for the sort of the high point of the civil rights protest movement in the early 1960s. But I wasn't too young for the, I'll call it public response to the Vietnam War. In fact, I was in college when the draft ended, excuse me, when the draft exemption ended and when there was a lottery and um, I and everybody else that I knew, every, excuse me, every other male that I knew in college was liable to be drafted. And so by this time, this is the early 1970s, it seemed to me that the war in Vietnam was wrong. And it was wrong policy, I thought. It was just, it was sort of foolish policy. It was counterproductive policy. But I also thought that if you are engaged in a war that is not for good purposes, then it becomes a moral question. So what do you do? Well, this is a question I had to answer. I would say that certainly in the United States in the last year, people have been confronting this question in the Black Lives Matter movement and the question of police brutality, inequality and in other forms. So what do you do? Do you speak up? Do you withdraw your cooperation? Do you vote? What do you do? So this is, I would suggest, a timeless question. And the question, as it emerged in the lives of the protagonists of my book, John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, the overriding question was, what do you do about slavery? Now, I do make a point in developing the story over the lives of John Brown, born in 1800, and Abraham Lincoln, born in 1809, that by the end of their lives, 1859 for John Brown, 1865 for Abraham Lincoln, by the end of their lives, it was the overriding question, but at the beginning of their lives, it was one question among many. And so part of the story is the evolution of thinking regarding the institution of slavery. And I tell it in the form of how it appeared to the country as a whole, but specifically how it appeared to these two men. Very briefly, John Brown was born in New England, but his family moved to Ohio when he was quite young. So he grew up in Ohio. Ohio was a free state, but it was just across the Ohio River from slave state, Kentucky. And so John Brown was aware that there were two different groups of people operating under different rules. Uh, owners of enslaved people brought their slaves into Ohio for temporary work where you could uh, if you had a, some people had farms in Kentucky and another farm in Ohio. And if you brought your slaves to work the farm in Ohio, they could work there for a while as long as they didn't stay too long, but it's like sort of overstaying your visa. If they stayed too long, then there were problems that maybe they became free. So you'd send them back to Kentucky. But the, the point of this is that John Brown grew up knowing that there were these people called slaves in his world. But they weren't in his face much of the time because he lived on the Ohio side of the river. But there's a moment in John Brown's childhood, he recalled until in toward the very end of his life, when it sunk into him the first time. So what it means for somebody to be a slave, he remembered that he was playing, he was a, a boy of nine or 10, and he was playing with this other boy about his same age. The other boy happened to be a black boy. And they were playing and they were just playing as kids play until after they'd been playing for a while, this white man came up to the black boy and began yelling at him and giving him orders. And when the black boy was moving too slowly to suit the pleasure of this, this white man, the, the white guy began beating him over the head and, and John Brown was flummoxed and flabbergasted and 
And then he had to ask some questions about it. And he was explained, okay, this boy is a slave and this is what happens to slaves. And John Brown remembered as an adult, as an almost middle age, in his middle ages, he remembered that for the first time he appreciated that his life was very different from that of this enslaved kid. This, this black boy would grow up always having to basically jump when somebody, when his master told him to jump. And nobody could do to John Brown what this man did as a matter of course to this black boy simply because he was black and a slave. And so John Brown thought about this and in his middle years, he recalled that this was the moment when I began to think about slavery and to think that slavery was this evil thing, but he's only a kid. So what does a kid do about it? John Brown grows up and he proceeds to think about it some more. He lives in a part of Ohio where abolitionism is really taking hold. He eventually moved to the town of Hudson, Ohio. There are lots of abolitionists in Hudson, Ohio. And John Brown remembered another moment, sort of a second epiphany. And this occurred when John Brown was 37 years old in 1837, when news came to the abolitionist community in, in Hudson, Ohio, that an abolitionist editor, Elijah Lovejoy, had been brutally murdered in Alton, Illinois. Um, a pro-slavery mob from across the Mississippi River in Missouri had come in and murdered Elijah Lovejoy for expressing these anti-slavery opinions. And John Brown thought about this and he said, okay, John Brown was not a political kind of guy or political minded guy, but this made him realize that what other people had been saying about the reach of the slave power was true, that it was, it was part and parcel of the abolitionist movement and the abolitionist message that the slave power was growing in strength. And for Elijah Lovejoy to be killed simply for expressing views that contradicted the views of the slaveholders and for this to happen on free soil, John Brown concluded, boy, this is, things have gone too far. An honest man, a good man, has to stand up for the right. And so John Brown did stand up. He stood up in his church in Hudson, Ohio. And he said, before the eyes of God, before the eyes of the congregation here, I pledge the rest of my life to the struggle against slavery. And so John Brown became a committed abolitionist. But, but what exactly did abolition mean for John Brown? This is, this is at the heart of my question. So what does the good person do in the face of evil? John Brown, by the age of 37, has concluded that slavery was this overriding evil. But still, John Brown, what are you going to do about it? And John Brown still couldn't quite figure it out. John Brown, well, like a whole lot of people, I think, in life, John Brown found his calling eventually by process of elimination. He wasn't a particularly successful farmer. He was not a good herder of cattle and sheep. He tried his hand at business. He really couldn't, couldn't sink his teeth into anything. He couldn't really find his place. He did have lots of children. He wound up having 20 kids by two wives. So he was good at having kids, lots of offspring around. And this would turn out to be important for his actions when he actually did find his calling. But it still took another almost 20 years until the middle of the 1850s, John Brown was 54 years old in the year of the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854. And the Kansas-Nebraska Act was this alarm bell to abolitionists who had thought at least that slavery had been contained. There were, it was contained by the Ohio River, so it couldn't go north of the Ohio River. It had been contained by the Missouri Compromise of 1820 that said in that new Louisiana Purchase, the northern part of the Louisiana Purchase would be forever off limits to slavery. But the Kansas-Nebraska Act overturned that part of the Missouri Compromise. And John Brown and other abolitionists, and even just mildly anti-slavery people thought, oh my gosh, this shows that far from slavery nearing its end, it's going to grow and there will be no containing. So John Brown did what many other opponents of slavery did then. He moved himself and several, four of his adult sons and another group of followers, and they went to Kansas territory. The Kansas-Nebraska Act opened Kansas territory to settlement under the principle of popular sovereignty. So it meant that people could go to Kansas territory and settle from the north, and they could take their horses and their cows and their pigs and their tools. 
And people could go to Kansas territory from the South and they could take their horses and their cows and their pigs and their tools and their slaves, considered property. And when Kansas territory had enough people there to warrant becoming a state, then they would get together, they would write a constitution, and then whoever had the majority in the state, in the about to be state, would decide whether the new state of Kansas would be a free state or a slave state. So the rush was on to Kansas to see who would fill up the territory first. And the rush became violent because this was a high stakes operation, a high stakes question. And John Brown discovered that he had a knack for military leadership, or at least paramilitary leadership. It also demonstrated to John Brown that John Brown had a ruthless streak, in fact, a very ruthless streak, after an attack by a pro-slavery mob on the free state capital of Lawrence, Kansas, which in which the, the anti-slavery settlers did a poor job of defending themselves. John Brown decided that the anti-slavery forces in Kansas needed to send a message to the pro-slavery forces. And the message would be a message of, well, we'd call it terrorism. John Brown led a small band into a, a, a hammer on the banks of Pottawatomie Creek in the eastern part of Kansas territory. And in the middle of the night, John Brown and his men dragged from their beds five pro-slavery settlers and brutally murdered them, hacked them to death with broadswords. The message John Brown was sending was, any other pro-slavery settlers who come to Kansas territory, this could happen to you. So as a result of this, John Brown becomes notorious and he's wanted for murder in Kansas territory and the rest of the country. But in those days, it was pretty easy to hide out. There was no photography to speak of. So it's his picture wasn't on the, the wall of any post office anywhere. He cut his hair and grew his beard and changed his name. And he just went around planning an even bigger operation. This, a, a blow against slavery where it already existed in the South. And the result of this was the raid on Harper's Ferry in 1859. John Brown led a, a larger band into Harper's Ferry then in Virginia, now in West Virginia, where was located a federal arsenal. And the goal was to seize the weapons from the arsenal and distribute the, West, the weapons among enslaved young men in the area who would then rise up in defense of their freedom. They would strike for their freedom. They would basically start a war for their freedom. This was what John Brown was trying to do. And John Brown's belief, his hope was that the institution of slavery would be so shaken by this attack and its repercussions that the value of slaves would fall and the whole system of slavery would collapse. Well, that's not what happened because John Brown, well, he could, he could lead a small band of men as a leader of insurgents or a guerrilla group, he was fine, but he didn't think strategically very well. He figured, okay, we're gonna get into Harper's Ferry, but he did somehow didn't realize that it's a lot easier to get into Harper's Ferry than it is to get out of Harper's Ferry. John Brown was captured, he was arrested, he was tried, he was sentenced to death for treason against Virginia, state of Virginia, and for murder in the deaths of several people during the raid. He was convicted and he was executed. And John Brown was seen by white Southerners, especially white Southern slaveholders, as the kind of person that wanted to destroy the South, or the part of the South that mattered to them. And the fact that the North Harvard people like John Brown told very many white Southerners, we can no longer stay safely in this union. And furthermore, when Northerners, especially abolitionists, praised John Brown as a martyr to the cause of freedom, then the South grew apoplectic. White Southerners think, oh my gosh, not only is the North harboring and producing people like John Brown, but they're praising them. No, we definitely cannot stay in the union. That's John Brown. Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is my parallel story. And Abraham Lincoln was nine years younger than John Brown. His epiphany, his moment of truth, his realization that slavery was wrong came in his late teens when he hired out to float a flatboat of cargo from Indiana down to New Orleans, down the Ohio River and Mississippi River, where they sell the goods there, break it up, and then walk home. And for the first time in Abraham Lincoln's life, he saw a slave auction in operation. He had been 
born in Kentucky. Kentucky was a slave state. He had lived in Indiana and slaves wandered in and out of Indiana the way they did in Ohio, but he had never seen an auction. He never confronted the, the chattel aspect of slavery, that human beings were bought and sold the way cattle and horses were. And they were inspected in very much the same way. And Lincoln remembered in later years, yes, this was when he realized that slavery was not just this inconvenience, not just this sort of wrinkle in the fabric of the American Republic, but something fundamentally morally wrong. But the question for Abraham Lincoln, like the question for John Brown is, Abe, what are you going to do about it? And where John Brown eventually came to the conclusion that what he needed to do about it was to wage war, take up arms against slavery, Abraham Lincoln said no. Abraham Lincoln believed that that was counterproductive. Abraham Lincoln had sort of heard of John Brown after the murders in Kansas territory. But John Brown was not this well-known figure then, and, and he seemed to have disappeared. As I said, he was on the land, and, and he had, was under disguise and all this other stuff. But after, well, in fact, at the time of the raid on Harper's Ferry, when it became clear that the guy who was leading the raid on Harper's Ferry was the same guy, the same Brown, who killed those settlers in Kansas territory, Abraham Lincoln made very clear that he disagreed with John Brown on those tactics, on the use of violence. For John Brown, slavery was so wrong that it basically took precedence over everything else. Here's, here's abolition. Here's the cause of freedom for the slaves. And everything else is down here, including the laws and constitution of the United States. For Abraham Lincoln, Abraham Lincoln, the, the situation was reversed. Abraham Lincoln did not yield any ground to John Brown on the evil, the wrongness of slavery, but Abraham Lincoln revered the Constitution. Abraham Lincoln believed that if the Constitution was lost, then the freedoms of everybody in the country would be lost. It was, it was the Constitution, it was the promise of freedom in the Declaration of Independence that the Northern states had tried to live up to, that's what caused them to end slavery. And Abraham Lincoln believed that the South would come of its own volition to the same conclusion. And he believed that actions like John Brown's murders in Kansas, the raid on Harper's Ferry, were counterproductive in the short term. They would tighten the shackles on enslaved people all the more because the modest or minimal freedoms that they had, those were taken away. They would have to be under surveillance the whole time. And furthermore, in the long run, it would make the work of emancipation harder because Abraham Lincoln believed, like his political hero, his model, what he called his beau ideal of a statesman, Henry Clay of Kentucky, that slavery would end when the slaveholders themselves concluded that slavery no longer suited the purposes of themselves and their states. And Kentucky and Virginia and Alabama and Georgia and Mississippi would do what New York and Pennsylvania and, and Massachusetts had done of their own volition, they would end slavery. But by alarming the South, by driving the South out of the Union, People like John Brown were simply making that realization, pushing that realization farther into the future. So Abraham Lincoln chose the path of politics. Abraham Lincoln was a practicing politician. And part of his calculation was, I'm never going to get to be a senator from Illinois if I identify with the abolitionists. Because the abolitionists, they, they really alienated people. Yeah, they, they spoke what they considered to be their truth, but it made few allowances for the rest of the people in the country. It made no allowances in some case for the Constitution. William Lloyd Garrison, perhaps the most prominent and one of the earliest of the abolitionists, publicly burned his copy of the Constitution, saying if the Constitution guarantees slavery, then I don't want the Constitution. William Lloyd Garrison even said that the Northern states should secede from the Southern states so they could wash their hands of responsibility for slavery. Wouldn't do the southern slaves much good, but at least it would make them feel better about themselves. Abraham Lincoln said, no, no, we're going to go, we're going to do the political route. Slavery will end in this country. It will end in those southern states just as it ended in the northern states, by law, by the Constitution. And Abraham Lincoln also wanted to be president of the United States. And so if you're going to be president of the United States, you can't scare, well, even half the North, the daylights out of half the North, by identifying with these crazy abolitionists like John Brown. I, I have to that's what John Brown was called, I will tell you. I do not think that John Brown was crazy in the slightest, but nonetheless, that's how they were often portrayed. So Lincoln, Lincoln, for personal political reasons, but also out of his deepest reverence and belief in the Constitution, said, violence is off the table, or at best, violence 
is a last resort, and it's going to be violence for something other than emancipation. So Abraham Lincoln eschews violence until the South secedes. And then he takes arms not to free the slaves, to preserve the Union. And this old chestnut was the Civil War about slavery, or was it about states' rights? And the answer to every question like this in history, it's both. Or if you have multiple choices, it's all of the above, because history is complicated. But for Abraham Lincoln, the Civil War was not about slavery at first. And part of this was simply prudential, because seven states left the Union right after Lincoln's inauguration. Um, yes, right after, or actually between Lincoln's election and the inauguration. Seven states left, which meant that eight slave states were still in the Union. If Lincoln came out and said, now I'm going to wage war against slavery, he would lose those eight, and he almost certainly would have lost what became the Civil War. So Lincoln has to tread carefully here. But in addition, in addition, he understood that slavery would end in this country only when the Constitution was changed. And you couldn't destroy the Constitution if you expect to change the Constitution in slavery. So Lincoln goes to war to preserve the Union. As he said in a famous letter to Horace Greeley, the abolitionist editor of the New York Tribune, he said, my job is to preserve the Union. If I could preserve the Union by freeing all the slaves, I would do that. If I could preserve the Union by freeing none of the slaves, I would do that. If I could preserve the Union by freeing half the slaves and leave the other half free, I would do that. My job is to preserve the Union. But Lincoln concluded about a year and a half in war that preserving the Union required freeing the slaves. The slaves were an, a large part of the Southern the Confederate war effort because they did the labor, the heavy lifting on the plantations. And slaves and slave people might be enticed, might be encouraged to cross the, war, the lines of the war and come join the Union cause. So Lincoln issues the Emancipation Proclamation beginning of 1863. And so that in Lincoln's case, finally, preserving the Union is all about freeing the slaves. And so there's an irony here, but there's an irony in all sorts of history where John Brown chose the path of violence to free the slaves and failed. He didn't even start the war he wanted at Harper's Ferry. And he didn't free any slaves as a result of the Harper's Ferry raid. Abraham Lincoln chose the path of politics to preserve the Union. Now, and, and to do it ideally without starting war. In fact, he failed to avoid the war. He did preserve the Union. But in the process, he freed the slaves. Okay, so I'm going to stop there and let's see what kind of questions we have. So, Christopher, are we getting any questions? Or, you probably have questions. I'd like to hear what you have to say about this. Well, thank you. Uh, and thank you for your remarks as well. I wanted to start by talking about what in your book you uh, refer to, maybe not in these exact words, but the inevitability of violence as being what helps bring slavery to an end and how John Brown saw this and how Lincoln was reluctant to accept it, but ultimately he did. Um, do you think that Brown's willingness to kill slaveholders came from not being raised among them and that Lincoln's reluctance came from being raised partly in Kentucky and, and seeing slavery firsthand. I think that might very well be the case. I broaden it very, I broaden it slightly. That John Brown reached a point in his feelings about slavery where he tended to objectify the people that he was dealing with. In many respects, he sort of objectified the enslaved peoples themselves because he very much misled himself in thinking that the slaves in the vicinity of Harper's Ferry would flock to his side. He had weapons to hand out, but almost none of them did. In fact, there's a, there's a poignant moment in the book, and I tell this part of the story. So the, the third character in the, on the title of my book and on the cover of the book, John Brown and Abraham Lincoln are listed, but the third character who gets uh, a lot of space in the book is Frederick Douglass, the former slave himself and a very prominent abolitionist. And for me, as the author of a book about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, Frederick Douglass was convenient to the point of being necessary because I had this problem in constructing the story because I'm telling these parallel lives and the, the lives sort of cross each other, but the individuals, John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, never met. So it would have been great for my story if at the climax of the story, they meet you know, and they, 
They argue about this or whatever they do, but they didn't, they never met. However, Frederick Douglass did know both of them. Frederick Douglass met John Brown fairly early, before John Brown went off to Kansas, when John Brown was just hatching various plots about how to oppose slavery. And, and Frederick Douglass trying to get his grounding in the abolitionist movement. And so the poignant moment occurs just before the raid on Harper's Ferry. And John Brown sends a message to Frederick Douglass, Fred Douglass, as he was known, his friends, as he called him, and uh, said, let's meet. And so they met. They met at this abandoned quarry, and John Brown was in disguise, and Frederick Douglass kind of came along there and didn't want anybody else to see that he was meeting this infamous John Brown. And John Brown tried to persuade Frederick Douglass to join the raid on Harper's Ferry. And John Brown explained that this is the blow, this is the beginning of the war that will end slavery. And he explained what he was going to do and all this. And he said, and having you there would lend such credibility to this effort because John Brown did have a credibility problem here. And the credibility problem was, okay, so here's this white guy coming to free these slaves and the slaves have never heard of him. And they have no idea if he's to be trusted or not, or if he's a lunatic and is going to get them all killed. So Frederick Douglass listens to John Brown. They meet for most of a day. And John Brown is just trying to persuade him, come on, come on, you've got to join us. And finally, Douglas says, no, I'm not going to. And part of his reasoning was, and he shared some of this directly with John Brown, we have this story only through Frederick Douglass's recollection, so we have to sort of take it for that. But, but Douglass's position was, look, I sort of fought my way to freedom once, and that's all the fighting I'm going to do. I'm a writer, not a fighter. You, know, you, John Brown, you're a fighter. That's fine. Go fight, but not me. But the other thing was, and he, he certainly didn't tell this directly to John Brown, at least not as Frederick Douglass recalled it in his autobiography. Frederick Douglass knew that this was a suicide mission, that John Brown would not accomplish what he wanted to accomplish because Frederick Douglass had been a slave. And he understood that if you're going to try to make a break for freedom, you try to take the best chance you can. And you, you wait until you see a good opportunity. And for most of the enslaved people around Harper's Ferry, this John Brown raid was not a good opportunity. They, would, they knew that in Virginia at the time, for a slave simply to put hands on a weapon, that was a capital offense. You could be killed by anybody. And they weren't going to do that unless they knew more about John Brown. And of course, that's why Brown wanted Frederick Douglass to come along and say, hey, you can trust him. But Frederick Douglass did not entirely trust John Brown for this sort of thing. He trusted John Brown's um, his loyalty to the cause. He trusted his sincerity. He trusted his courage. But he didn't trust his judgment or his skill on this. And that was really important. So Frederick Douglass sees John Brown and he says, in this crucial moment, says no to John Brown. But he was among those very many abolitionists who praised John Brown. And John Brown was, was almost uh, canonized by Northern abolitionists in part because John Brown was a man of action, when most of them were simply men of words. And John Brown had the courage of their convictions. And you have to admire somebody, even if you think he's wrongheaded, but somebody who believes in what he believes in sufficiently that he will give his life for the cause. At this point, Frederick Douglass had never met Abraham Lincoln, but he compared John Brown to Abraham Lincoln. And he thought, boy, Lincoln comes off a sorry second because John Brown, in the thinking of Frederick Douglass, had his priorities straight. Ending slavery is the most important thing before the country. And clearly, Abraham Lincoln did not put it that way. And Frederick Douglass was skeptical of Lincoln. Frederick Douglass, by this time, had a newspaper of his own. And in his newspaper, he would write editorials that took Lincoln very harshly to task. Mr. President, don't you realize? that this war is about slavery. And the sooner you recognize this and act upon that recognition, the better and the sooner the war will be over. And Lincoln, as I explained, was slow to come to that conclusion, at least slow by Frederick Douglass's standards. But when he did, Frederick Douglass later recalled what it was like on January 1st, 1863, when the Emancipation Proclamation was issued. And, and Frederick Douglass was in Boston at the time and they felt he and the other members of the abolitionist community, especially black people, felt that the, the jubilee had come 
that finally, finally, we can breathe the fresh air of freedom. So at that point, Frederick Douglass concludes that Abraham Lincoln, okay, maybe he's, maybe he's a good guy. And Lincoln, Lincoln was uh, a shrewd individual. Lincoln was some, but, but Lincoln also, Lincoln, I began this long-winded answer to this question um, by saying that John Brown sometimes objectified categories of people. Abraham Lincoln really humanized people. And so he was able to connect with people. He connected with Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass became a real fan of Abraham Lincoln. And uh, Lincoln tried to recruit Frederick Douglass to reach out to the Freedmen's community and the black community generally. And it, it might have happened except the, the war to a different term, it didn't. But, but Frederick Douglass was there at Lincoln's second inaugural address. And he thought that it was, in fact, af on the night of this second inauguration, Lincoln made a point of inviting Frederick Douglass into the, the reception. When some of the guards thought, no, we're not gonna let this black man in. So, you know, come on in. And he asked him specifically, what did you think of the address? And, and Douglass thought it was one of the best speeches he'd ever heard. And so Douglass, like everybody else on, on that side of the issue, was just utterly dismayed when Lincoln was assassinated just a few days later. Anyway, so other questions, other comments? Sure. But we are getting quite a few Good. about Dred Scott, and that's probably because of the, the relevance of Scott having been enslaved in Minnesota before it was Minnesota. And not only is the Dred Scott case important to Minnesota because of Scott's presence in Minnesota, as well as that of Harriet Scott, but also because when the Supreme Court ruled that slavery was legal in all territories, that actually included Minnesota because Minnesota wasn't a state yet. It would be a territory for another 14 months. So from March of 1857 to May of 1858, slavery was legal here. And there actually was an influx of Southerners with their enslaved people during those 14 months, especially during the tourism season in the summer. Uh, I would like to know what you think was the impact of the Dred Scott decision on how Brown carried forth with his crusade and how Lincoln carried forth with his politics. Basically, the Dred Scott decision declared that Congress had no authority to prevent slavery from spreading into the federal territories. It also, as an obiter dictum, said that black people could not be citizens in the United States. It was the, the business about whether Congress could rule on slavery in the territories that went right to the heart of what the Republican Party was all about. The position of the Republican Party as a party was that slavery is secure in the states where it exists, because that was the original understanding of the Constitution. And even for states like Kentucky, which was not one of the original 13, the understanding of everybody was states control their own domestic institutions, including slavery. And this is why Lincoln said, and he said again and again, that I have no design against slavery in Virginia or slavery in Kentucky or slavery. That's a matter for the people of those states to determine. But the Republican Party said, Congress can rule on slavery in the territories because those are not states. And so it doesn't run afoul of states' rights. But when the Supreme Court, when the Roger Taney Court in 1857 ruled against Dred Scott, they said that, no, he was slave because the Missouri Compromise of 1820 had been unconstitutional all along. Congress could not bar slavery from the territories. The, the reasoning of the majority opinion was the Constitution says that the states cannot bar the transit of property from one state to another. And under the Constitution, slaves counted as property. And so Congress could not prevent slaveholders from taking their slaves into the Western territories any more than they could prevent people from taking their horses into the territories. Now, this was really a trigger to Lincoln's ambitions. John Brown was already devoted to the anti-slavery cause. He had already committed violence against slavery. But for Abraham Lincoln, 
Abraham Lincoln got back into politics at first because of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which I described earlier, but it was the Dred Scott case that really caused him to sort of up his game. And it was in the wake of the Dred Scott decision that Abraham Lincoln gave his famous or notorious house divided speech in, in which he said that a house divided against itself cannot stand. This country cannot continue to exist half slave and half free. It will become either all of one or all of the other. And the concern of people like Lincoln, a lawyer, and other people who really paid attention to the reasoning in the Dred Scott case was, well, if the constitution says that individuals cannot be prevented from taking their property to the federal territories, that same logic would say that individuals cannot be prevented from taking their property into other states. And so just as Minnesota was reopened or opened for the first time to slavery, so Pennsylvania and Massachusetts and New York might be open to slavery. And this is what really alarmed Lincoln, which was prompted, this country might become all slave. And so it gave an immediacy to the the movement against slavery. And it was as bad as it was for the institution of slavery in the near term, it was one of the best things that happened to the Republican Party because the Republican Party had come together out of the ruins of the old Whig Party. And the old Whig Party couldn't make its mind on slavery, which is one of the reasons that it fell apart. But it was pro-business. And the, the new Republican Party was pro-business, but it was anti-slavery, but it was unclear where the balance, where the priority there lay. And now when it looked as though slavery was on the march, then the Republicans say, boy, we can't let this happen. We need to elect a president who will change the makeup of the Supreme Court and overturn the Dred Scott case. Or otherwise, all of the, the freedom laws of the Northern states, they will be overturned in their state. So the Dred Scott case caused all sorts of people to react in grave alarm. And as I said, with the Kansas-Nebraska Act, telling people like John Brown that the slave power is on the move. Well, this was another example because Roger Tony was a former slaveholder himself from Tennessee. And you know, it looked as though they had captured the federal judiciary and there was no telling where that was gonna go. One of the questions that came in from the audience is about you as a writer. It says, H.W. Brands keeps cranking out these big, well-researched books. What are his secrets, or at any rate, tips he would share with junior writer researchers? Well, if I have a secret, it is that I am also a teacher of history. And I have made a point from my earliest days teaching to insist on teaching a survey, an introductory course, a broad gauge survey of American history from colonial times to the present, which means that I have to try to be good at explaining complicated things in a relatively brief space. So when I was a young professor, I did what young professors do when I wrote for the audience of specialists and I wanted my books to be reviewed well in the American Historical Review and places like that because I had to get a job and then I had to get tenure. But I had always envisioned that my readers would be an enlarged classroom, sort of like I mentioned at the beginning of this evening, where I consider all of you to be part of my classroom. And so I make a point of teaching this introductory class. I have, for example, one 50-minute, five-zero-minute lecture each year to explain the Civil War. Now, for a lot of people, oh, my gosh, you throw up your hands. It's impossible. No, no, it's not impossible. You just have to figure out what the important parts are, what needs to explain, and what doesn't. So when I decided to write about John Brown and Abraham Lincoln to focus on this book, I knew 80% of the story. Actually, I knew 90% of the story. And the main thing was I had to figure out so exactly how to tell the story and, and what parts to put in and what parts to leave out and what, my, what the storyline, what the trajectory of John Brown specifically was in Abraham Lincoln. Now, I had written enough about Lincoln to know what the sources on Lincoln were. This is critical. This is critical to any historian. We are the prisoner of our sources. And if you know where the sources are, then you can sort of get at what you wanted. And in various books and various other things I'd written, I knew, I knew pretty well what the, the work, what the surviving letters, speeches, and everything of Abraham Lincoln were and are. With John Brown, I hadn't spent so much time, but I knew who John Brown was, and I knew how he was perceived. So I knew, I knew the context in which all this stuff took place. It was really getting kind of the inside story. So 
this is all a long-winded way of saying that I think that far from my teaching interfering with my writing, my teaching reinforces and accelerates my writing. One last thing, and that is that when I'm working on a book project, and teachers do this all the time, when you're, when you're trying to illustrate a principle of history or something, you pick examples. And when I was writing a book about Franklin Roosevelt, all roads seem to lead to the New Deal. And when I was writing about Benjamin Franklin, I would quote from the letters of Benjamin Franklin or Poor Rich's Almanac. When I was working on John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, the examples that I took came from their lives. And so I get a chance to try out my ideas on what's kind of a target audience. Now, as I say, uh, I actually didn't say this, but my students in this required class, I have a big required class of 500 students, and 95% of them are not history majors. They're taking, they're taking the class because they have to take the class. It's required for graduation. But these are sort of generally interested people, kind of like the, what I imagine my audience, my readers, uh, the audience for my books would be. And so I have to try to intrigue them. I have to draw them in. And so I would try out, for example, one of the things I do with my students a lot is I ask them, so what would you have done if you were so-and-so at this particular time? So I, I tried at that moment that I explained a few minutes ago where Frederick Douglass is being urged by John Brown to join the raid on Harper's Ferry. And I ask the students to imagine, you are Frederick Douglass. Now, this is a way I can kind of bootleg in the background of Frederick Douglass, and they will have heard about him, but you know, tell them a little bit about his background. So how did he get to that moment two weeks before the raid on Harper's Ferry? And what's he thinking? How does the world look to him? Here's John Brown saying, this is what I want you to do. And I ask my students, you are Frederick Douglass. What would you do? And so I get to sort of try out my setup and see how these questions engage the students. I will say this. Maybe it, this isn't surprising because it was true during John Brown and Abraham Lincoln's life. My students, they respond more to John Brown than to Abraham Lincoln because John Brown saw things really clearly. And of course, it helps that John Brown turned out to be on the right side of history in the sense that he was the one who came out strongly against slavery, certainly more strongly and overtly than Abraham Lincoln did. And Lincoln, Lincoln sort of didn't have the luxury of irresponsibility because he was responsible for the country. And he knew that there are a lot of people in the country who certainly didn't share those abolitionist views. And so Lincoln has to try to make this stuff happen. So my students, they really, they really like John Brown. And I, so I have to work harder to get them to kind of uh, see what Lincoln's point of view. And then to, and we live at a time, of course, when um, Lincoln is, well, Lincoln has, his reputation has come under challenge. The, the school board of San Francisco decided to take the name of Abraham Lincoln off one of the schools there. I and mean, partly for his attitude on race, uh, partly for his treatment of uh, American Indians. But I try to get my students back in the past and say, okay, if you're responsible for something, what do you do? Anyway, so I find that teaching and writing go hand in hand. Now, for somebody who wants to be a writer, and if you're not a teacher, then it's a little bit harder. I will say this, I have friends who write, who write history and who aren't teachers, and they have to do a lot more sort of groundwork of research just to sort of figure out what's going on in the world at their time. That's stuff that I've been lecturing about for years. So I, I have an advantage there. Maybe that's my secret. Okay. And a follow-up question for the audience is, how did you get your start as a historian? Ah, yes. So my father was always interested in history, but us particular kinds of history. My father was in the army during World War II, and he's specifically in the Corps of Engineers. And so he used to build bridges and stuff like that. And so I grew up in Portland, Oregon. And in the Northwest, there are all sorts of projects that the Army Corps of Engineers built. And I remember when I was a kid, from the time I was probably four years old, I must have been, gone to Bonneville Dam, which is about 35 miles east of Portland, maybe 10 times when I was a kid, because it's got the big seal of the Army Corps of Engineers there. And my, my dad, he didn't actually work on the Bonneville Dam, but he knew people who had. And so you know, that's what we did. And I thought, boy, I was impressed. Uh, so my dad had this interest in history. But when I was about that same age, my grandparents bought a house, uh, a summer house on the slopes of Mount Hood. 
And it turned out, I knew nothing about this at the time, but I mean, excuse me, at the beginning, but I soon learned, it was smack, it was literally exactly on the old Oregon Trail, a particular branch of the Oregon Trail called the, called the Barlow Road. And so I grew up hearing stories about the kids or people coming west in their wagons and they would go right by the front of the property. And so I have three siblings, two older sisters and younger brother. And we would go hide in the, the woods and we would play like we were either Indians or we were the, the settlers coming out. My grandmother was very interested in history and she would read to us out of uh, various books by a local author. We were talking about local history before Christopher. And, and so this was history that was, it was historical fiction that was set in Oregon. And one of the first books that I remember was a book by uh, the woman's name, the author's name was Mary Jane Carr. She was from Portland. And she wrote a book called Children of the Covered Wagon. And boy, this just catnip to me because I imagine that I and my brother and sisters, we were the kids of the covered wagon. And of course, in those stories, uh, they always wind up, the kids always wind up orphans. In this case, the the parents died of cholera or something on the path west, and so they have to kind of get along by themselves. So we imagined we'd be out there, and my grandmother and grandfather indulged us by buying a wagon that they put in the front yard of the, the property. And so we'd get on the wagon and we'd do all this stuff. And so from the earliest time, I just, I liked stories, but I've, I've always been one who likes my stories to be true stories. And one last thing, in ninth grade, I had a teacher who did an experiment, a pedagogical experiment, in which he took half of his class and the control half of the class did the usual stuff. They listened to lectures and they read a textbook and they did workbook pages and took tests and all that. I fortunately was part of the experimental group and all we did was to read books. We read biographies, we read historical novels and other stuff. And these were just regular books for adults. These weren't dumbed down kids books. And just said, okay, at the beginning of the, the school year, he came in with a stack of books and he said, okay, this is what you're going to do this year. You're going to read these books. And while the other kids were doing the stuff in the regular class, we would just read the books. And I became fascinated by these historical stories. And I can't say that at that point, I thought one day I'm going to sort of tell those stories, but it kind of nurtured in the back of my mind. And eventually one thing led to another, I got into teaching and then I decided, you know, I want to do some of that stuff. So it's been a long-standing interest. I feel very fortunate that this long-standing interest has been able to become a profession with me. So I feel extremely fortunate that I get to do, I get to teach, which I love to do, and I get to write, which I really like to do too. Very good. Multiple people are asking this question. Uh, what are your thoughts on the new Showtime project, The Good Lord Bird? And even if you didn't care for it, what are your thoughts on Ethan Hawke's portrayal of John Brown? Ah, well, this is one where I get to do my historian's dodge, where I haven't seen the show. I've read parts of the book, the James and Bride novel on which it's based, but I make a point of keeping a, a high wall between fiction and nonfiction. And what this means when I'm working on a particular aspect of history, I don't allow myself to read novels or to watch fictional portrayals. This is because I have a, a funny kind of memory. It's really sticky. When I read something, I hear something I remember, but it's, it doesn't come with sticky notes. So I can't remember where I saw something. And the last thing I want was to think, oh yeah, I remember there's a story about John Brown and I would include it in my book only to have it pointed out to me. No, no, that was from James McBride's novel. He made it up. So I can't really say here. I will say this though. Um, I understand that uh, John Brown, as Ethan Hawke portrayed him, at least borders on lunacy if it doesn't cross the line. And I mentioned this earlier, John Brown was often dismissed as crazy John Brown. And I don't think John Brown was crazy at all in the sense of being out of touch with reality. No, John Brown sort of knew what he knew when he believed what he believed but he never thought the world was other than it actually was. Now, he thought the world should be, diff should be different than it was, and he would work to make it different than it was, but it's not as though he heard voices. He certainly did believe that God intended for slavery to end, and that God intended people like John Brown to take up arms against slavery, but it's not as though he was, you know, channeling heaven directly, and God was speaking in his ear or anything like that. So, I can't speak directly, to that particular novel and that particular show, 
But I do have a strong feeling about those people who, for their own reasons, wanted to dismiss John Brown as crazy. In fact, many Republicans at the time of Abraham Lincoln found it very convenient to say John Brown was crazy. He does not represent what most people in the North believe. Abraham Lincoln did make a point of saying John Brown is not a Republican, and Republicans do not believe what John Brown believes. But I don't think Lincoln, I don't think Lincoln ever said he was crazy. And I certainly wouldn't say that either. Okay. Well, my next question is on a more personal level for me, because you mentioned the caning of Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks. And Preston Brooks happens to be my first cousin five times removed. And Preston's grandfather, Zach Brooks, held my third great-grandparents as slaves back in the 1840s. And I was just wondering if you thought that Brooks's caning of Sumner proved John Brown's point about violence being what ends slavery, since violence is now accompanying slavery, even on the floor of Congress. It was um, the caning of Charles Sumner by Preston Brooks did shock John Brown. It didn't surprise him because he thought that's the way the slave power operates, but it did shock him. And it caused him to believe that things were getting even more out of control than he had thought. So with, and it wasn't just John Brown, it was all sorts of people who thought, oh my gosh, if this is what it is coming to, if those, those people who are in favor of slavery, if they will not allow somebody to speak against it, if they will commit violence against it, then is this union worth holding together? I mentioned that the garrison, among others, were saying that the South, excuse me, the North ought to secede from the South, because if this is what the union involves, we don't want any part of it. It complicated Lincoln's task when the South did secede following his election, because there were many voices, including many of the abolitionists who said, let them go. We don't wanna have anything to do with these people anymore. And there are not very many moments in history where a single person, even a president of the United States sort of holds the future in his hand. Most presidents are as much sort of creatures of their times as they are initiators of events of their time. So this is one of those cases where if Lincoln had heeded William Garrison, Wendell Phillips, uh, Horace Greeley, and said, let the South go, then the Union would have ended right there because it was a decision by the President of the United States that secession will be resisted by military force. If Lincoln had said, nope, you know, I'm not gonna do it, then, well, that's exactly what James Buchanan said. James Buchanan thought that, slave, that secession was unconstitutional, but he also believed that the Constitution did not give the president authority to do anything substantive about it. Now, in defense of James Buchanan, he had been rejected. I mean, he was not gonna be president, and it would have been probably imprudent, if not downright irresponsible, for him to have committed the country to a path that he knew he couldn't follow through. Lincoln did not give Buchanan any help, though. And it's a moment in Lincoln's history that puzzled all sorts of Lincoln's contemporaries and puzzles biographers and historians of Lincoln today. After his election and after the electoral vote was counted, and it was clear that he was going to be president, from then until his inauguration, that was from early December until early March, Lincoln refused to state clearly what he would do in the event of secession. And so a lot of people said, Mr. President-elect, you gotta say something because the union's falling apart. And Lincoln, Lincoln rationalized his silence by saying, look, I'm not president yet. I can't do anything. And he also said, read my speeches, read what I've said before. I've said that secession is not constitutional. It's not legal. We can't allow the country to be torn apart. But that just doesn't wash because candidates for president say all sorts of stuff. And nobody knows whether they're serious or not, really. But once you've been elected, then you speak with a very different voice. And if Lincoln had said quite clearly, if the South tries to leave the Union, this means war. Well, then perhaps 
fewer states would have been inclined to follow the example of South Carolina. Now, on the other hand, maybe Virginia would have been sufficiently alarmed to leave with the first wave instead of waiting until after the firing at Fort Sumter. So that's one of those imponderables. And, and I guess the biggest imponderable of all of this is, and this sort of gets to, I think, the origin of this question. Um, so was John Brown's action at Harper's Ferry, or for that matter, in Kansas, can it be justified? Can an individual take the law into his own hands? Can he take other people's lives into his own hands and say, I know better, I have a higher cause? And in his defense, John Brown would have said, and he said, in other words, the war has already begun. Slavery is an institution bathed in violence. There has been war against the black people, the slaves of this country for generations. It's time for us to fight back. And if you take that point of view, then okay, maybe that justifies it. Uh, and there was the thing that was, there was the, the really, you could call it gruesome, but certainly a bloody prophecy of John Brown as he was being taken away to be hanged. He smuggled a note to his jailer in which he said that the crimes of this country are so great that they can be atoned only by blood. This, this idea of blood atonement, that slavery is so wrong, it can only be ended with the massive effusion of blood. At that time, Abraham Lincoln did not believe it. He didn't want to believe it. He hoped it would not happen. But in Lincoln's second inaugural address, he almost said the same thing. Now, he put it slightly conditionally, but he said it may be God's will that every drop of blood drawn by the slaver's lash must be repaid with a drop of blood drawn by the sword. That may be the will of God. So Lincoln had become almost uh, a believer in the same thing that John Brown believed in. So the war... The war changed a lot of people's thinkings on all sorts of things. And so the last question I'll do with this. Um, so what do we think about John Brown today? Is John Brown a model? If we had to choose between John Brown and Abraham Lincoln, so what you choose, I, I told you, my students, they think John Brown is much more dramatic. John Brown is much more decisive, all this stuff. Lincoln, in some ways, as important as he is, Lincoln's a politician. Lincoln, you know, has to shave and, and compromise and do all this other stuff. And... The way I think about it is that if, if you think that John Brown was right, that great violence, a war comparable to the Civil War was necessary to end slavery, then you probably say John Brown's your guy. He just got there before other people did. But I'm not so sure that John Brown was right. And I, I can't prove this, of course, you can't prove counterfactuals in history, but I'll just put something out there for the listeners to consider. In 1800, Slavery was legal in nearly every country in the world. There were a few exceptions, but for the most part, slavery had been around for thousands of years. Nobody remembers the first time anybody enslaved anybody else, but it had been around and it was just part of life. That was in 1800. It was this accepted way of life. And, and most people, I mean, a few people thought it was wrong not to be done away with, but they were a minority. That's 1800. In 1900, slavery was legal nowhere, again, with a few exceptions. And everybody agreed that slavery was wrong. So between 1800 and 1900, there was this huge shift in world opinion, but it was only in the United States of America that the ending of slavery required this massive war and the killing of hundreds of thousands of people. Other countries, nearly every country on earth, figured out how to end slavery without slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people. So it's certainly not out of the question, it seems to me, that Americans could have figured it out too. What ended slavery was not a real conversion experience of all sorts of people. The, the world didn't get suddenly more moral. What happened is that the economies of countries around the world change. And so in a modern economy, you need a flexible workforce. And you need to be able to lay people off when business goes down, when demand declines. And you need to hire them when you need more. Whatever else slavery is and isn't, it certainly is not a flexible form of labor. And the reason that the northern states ended slavery was not that they all of a sudden you know, got more moral. It's that they realized that slavery just doesn't suit our economy anymore. So 
this was basically the this was the basis for the Henry Clay Abraham Lincoln belief that eventually the South would come around to this. And and maybe the answer is yes, but of course I can't prove it. And what happened did happen. And so that's the thing we have to explain. All right. Well, thank you. Um, that's all the time that we have for this evening. Thanks again to H.W. Brands for penciling us in to your busy spring. Have a great night, everyone. And stay safe and healthy. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library event with H.W. Brands. Make sure to catch our next Club Book event with Robert Kolker. Robert Kolker is an established and esteemed investigative reporter, best known for the number one New York Times bestseller, Hidden Valley Road, Inside the Mind of an American Family. Oprah selected the chart-topping medical mystery for her reimagined Oprah's Book Club in 2020. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Club Book Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Club Book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including Melsa, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include MinPost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.